0: Okay, let's get into James chapter uh, 3, and we're now six weeks in, and this really is getting really uh, a familiar story with the book of James, that it's like, in your face, do this, bang, in your face, do that, bang, another one, it's like, oh, we get kind of through it. And the the thing with James is James is not actually a very difficult book to understand what he's saying. It's quite clear, do this, do this, don't do that. It gets a little bit like that, but the, the challenge with James is not to try and understand what he's saying, but to try and explain why he's saying it. And so we're going to carry on from uh, verse 13 of, of chapter 3. And we're just going to try and get under the skin, really, of what James is saying and how it's speaking to us. Don't forget James has wrote to the, the diaspora, the church that has been scattered and spread. And this is an insight into what was being taught into that church community. And verse 13 says, "'Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom.'" But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We'll just pause there for a moment. James opens this up and says, "Listen, remember this is to written to Christians. He writes this and he says there are two ways of living. As a Christian, you can live according to godly wisdom, the way that God has designed it to be, or you can live or you can try and live according to earthly wisdom." And James contrasts these two things and he says, "Look, earthly wisdom is a kind of wisdom that says, "It's all about me." Verse fourteen. It's motivated by self ambition. It's, it's what suits me, what I want, what I desire. It does not treat God as God. Instead, it says, "I know best." And so, even if even if God's word in the Bible says something different, he goes, "Well, actually, he can't really mean that because what God really means is." is what I think he means and what I think and we'll just cross that bit out and we'll just put a little asterisk there and I'll buy myself a big fat wide margin Bible with little bits of sight down the side where I can write in what he actually meant so I'll cross out that bit and little asterisk and go no he doesn't really mean that what he means is what I think. And it's funny how often when we live by earthly wisdom, when we think we know best, how often God seems to agree with exactly what we think. And it's kind of almost amusing how that goes that, hey, it's funny that the God of the universe who created all things happens to agree with absolutely everything that I want and think and do. And if that's the case, you're probably approaching it wrong. That's probably earthly wisdom. And James says it's false and it's self-centered. And he says, if you live this way, it is not actually, ironically, going to lead to the life you want. Why do we not treat God as God? Because we think that if I, this is what I want, and if I behave like this, this is the way to get it. And James says, ironically, you live like that. You ignore God. You don't treat God as God. You play by your own rules. You're not actually going to get where you want to be anyway. And even if you do, it's not actually going to get you what you want. It's not going to fulfill you. And James says... False earthly wisdom leads to jealousy and disorder. It's filled with envy. It's always comparing itself to others. And James says it's evil. It's unspiritual. Frankly, it's demonic. Because it's not how God intends for us to live he wants to live with us verse 17 he wants us to live with wisdom from above which is pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits and impartial and sincere and he wants us to live with er- godly wisdom not earthly wisdom because God living like that leads to peace and righteousness which is what God desires for you James says don't live by earthly wisdom live by godly wisdom and see that God is God and he is for you and And what he desires for you is peace and righteousness, and so align align your life with his plans and his purposes. He carries on, verse one of chapter four. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Basically, there was a whole load of arguing and disagreements and falling outs and and people saying things they shouldn't and and reacting in a way that they shouldn't, and, and tensions with each other, and it was like, oh, and he's saying, What are you doing? But who are you to judge your neighbor? So come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Hey, listen, we see the line... Of thinking here in james 's argument it 's our life is really quite short now, I know at times it doesn 't feel like it, and it feels like it goes on and on and on and on, but the reality is it is really quite short and there is a day coming when every single one of us, every person who steps foot on this planet, will stand one day before the judge, the one who sees all and knows all who 's king of kings and lord of lords, and decides basically holds in our, his hands our eternal fate. He makes the decision about where we're going to spend eternity and how we're going to spend it. He's the judge. He sees all and he knows all. And James' line of thinking is, look, recognize that and align your life now. Live your life now according to the reality of what you will face one day. Choose wisely how you live now. Live by godly wisdom. Be a friend of God's and your experience before the judge will not be one of fear and disaster but will be one of joy because judge's this judge is not just one who hands out condemning sentences he's one who hands he's one who hands out rewards he's one who saves he's one who says well done good and faithful servant and he's one who he dishes out each to how according to how we lived our lives live by godly wisdom it's going to be a great day live by worldly wisdom become an enemy of God and well that judge becomes a little bit terrifying let's just unpack what's going on here a little bit because verse 1 with this moment it says, James says what's going on what's causing all these arguments and this friction and what's causing the outward nip, 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 and the kind of quarreling and the things that we say and James could just, exactly as he's speaking to us today, what causes that moment when we're, nye, nye, nye. and he says, listen, it's got nothing to do with your, with your loony mother-in-law. It's got nothing to do with your kind of annoying boss. It's got nothing to do with those next door neighbors who just wind you up with the mm, 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 of their music or whatever it is. It, those things that you go, it's I'm annoyed and I'm irritated because my kids are this or my wife is that or the work person is this or the situation is that. And James says, no, no, no. It's got nothing to do with those external things. It's more what's going on within you. 'Cause he answers these questions, he says, Don't they come those argh, those moments, don't they come from your passions that are at war within you? Literally they come from the word passions, your desires or your pleasures. It's the Greek word hedoni, which basically is the word we get our English word hedonism from. It's that pursuit of pleasure that we all have, this drive that we all have to stuff our lives full of experiences and things and possessions and stuff. We, we're seeking pleasure. We're a pleasure-seeking people. We're wired for glory. There is a desire in us to stuff our lives full of things and exciting stuff and pleasure, what makes us happy and content, And because all of us are like that, it's going to grow in some way. And it either grows in a godly way or it grows in an earthly way. And if it grows in a godly way, then it's going to fuel gratitude and joy and gratefulness. And if it grows in an earthly way, it's going to fuel the absolute opposite. See, the person who allows it to grow in a godly way, it's like a kind of wildfire that catches and burns. Every little thing you're grateful for, every little thing you're thankful for, every little thing is treated as a blessing. It's not, I deserve this. It's, wow, I get this. So you wake up in the morning and you're thrilled with the sense of excitement that today is a new day and his grace and his mercy is new and the sun is shining. hey Or it's raining. Or hey, The garden will grow. Or I don't even have a garden. Great, I don't need to do any gardening. Or I do have a big garden. Wonderful, I can go out and play. Or it's I get grateful that I can get in the car and drive to where I'm going. Or if I don't have a car, I've got the bus. And if there's no public transport, I'm just grateful I've got legs and I can move. And it's that kind of, you're thankful for this and you're thankful for that. And it it leads to gratitude and it leads to gladness and it leads to joy. And ultimately, it leads to contentment. It is well with my soul. And it's not got anything to do with stuff. So if God gives me stuff, great. And if he doesn't, still great. Because God is good and is well with my soul. And I'm content and I am happy. That's how it grows in a godly way, and in an earthly way, it grows completely the opposite. They do grow, if you, grow in an, if you pursue an earthly wisdom, just not in a positive way at all. You begin to see things as if you're entitled to them somehow. And so you grow not in gladness and not in joy, but in contempt when you don't get them. So when you think you're owed something and you don't get it, you get angry and cross about it. When you think you deserve something and you don't get it, you get angry with others who do get it, and then ultimately you get angry with God. And when you see others get blessed, you can't rejoice in that because you think, they don't deserve that. I deserve that. And just as a little aside, I'll be honest with you, probably the worst thing you can ever pray is, God, give me what I deserve. You ever want to pray that, God, give me what I deserve, I deserve this. You do not want God to answer that prayer for you yep, alright, I'll give you exactly what you deserve that is not going to go well for you but an earthly way of thinking is I deserve this, I've worked really hard and James is the picture he's painting is not that pursuing pleasure is wrong it's just he's saying this, this driving desire within us that our personal pleasure is the main goal in life that's what earthly wisdom is and he says that's the issue that when we desire the things of our heart's desire, whether they're kind of sinful stuff of the flesh, like possessions, the bigger house, the bigger car, the bigger whatever it is, or relationships, or, or even the things, that are mo- or maybe the things that are motivated by selfish ambition of greed, like the position and the plaudits and the popularity. Like, oh, why did, I really want people to see me and unrecognize me and see all, how good I am. James says, look, there's like a battle going on in your hearts. And when we pursue those things, remember he's talking to Christians here. When we pursue those things of the world, it causes misery. He says, verse 2, you desire but you do not have. This whole passage just oozes with frustration and disappointment of worldly pleasure seeking. It's like I desire it and I don't get it. So I'm just disappointed. It's all I'm chasing and it doesn't happen. And so I'm just miserable about it. And God, what's going on? It's not fair. Why do they get it? Not content growing contempt instead and even actually if you do get it you soon realize well actually it doesn't really satisfy. There was a survey a few years ago of people in, uh, in all different um, wealth pack, um, categories of like naught to 10,000, 10 to 20,000 whatever it was all the way through to like uber millionaires and in every single category everybody said if they just had a little bit more 10 to 20% more, that's all, not greedy, just 10 to 20% more, then I'd be happy. And it was in every single category. Even in the millionaires, if we just had 10 to 20% more, I'd be, that's the reality. Those things don't ultimately satisfy. You can get a bit more, and it doesn't ultimately satisfy for you. You're never going to be content, always chasing more. If you're not content this afternoon, just got to ask ourselves, what are we chasing? Are we living by godly wisdom or worldly wisdom? And if you live by worldly wisdom, verse 3 tells us it results in ruining your prayer life. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So, what happens is that the Christian who's pleasure mad, who's pursuing all the the things of this world, because they're a Christian, there's like a measure of spirituality about them, all right? Then they kind of realize that actually praying for like the fancy car and the big Maserati and the Ferrari and and all of those kind of things, you kind of think, actually, that's that's probably not right. That's probably not going to actually line up with God's will. And so, I probably ought not to pray for that. And the problem is then, is I won't pray for that, and then I'll just pray, actually, the next thing I want, that probably doesn't design, line up with God's will, because I want to be rich, and, and that's probably not what he wants, so I won't pray for that. And what we end up getting is not praying for anything, because everything that we want in, on our list is things that you think, is probably not actually going to line up with what God wants, so we don't ask for anything. In fact, don't pray at all, and even if we do pray, if we're just praying, pursuing worldly things all the time, we're kind of missing the point, and it doesn't get answered, and it leads, to again, to frustration. And all of this leads, James tells us, to friendship with the world, which literally means being an enemy of God. If you're a friend with the world, it literally means you're an enemy of God. Now, James is not saying that you can't be friends with people in the world. That's not what he's talking about. His concept and understanding of friendship is not ours. Friendship to us today basically means casual acquaintance, all right? It's kind of like we have this attitude of here, and here's my really good friend Pete. I'm like, oh, cool. Where's Pete from? Uh, I have no idea. Where are you from Pete? You don't know somebody, right? It's that kind of thing. We have friendships based on how well we stalk people on Facebook, okay? Literally our friends today, are the kind of relationships we have with our friends today, 10 years ago it would have been illegal and you would have been locked up, all right? I, I know, I see what they like and what they eat. The only way you'd have known that 10 years ago if you were stalking them and that was illegal. Now they're considered our friends, all right, this, that's how we do friendship in the 21st century. It's like, I know everything about them. That's just weird because you just saw it on their timeline, okay, as opposed to you actually know. Friendship in the, in the New Testament times, in ancient days, you would know because you actually knew because you spent all of your time with one another because you lived in the same place with the same people for your entire life with those people and your friendship with them was so deep and connected and intimate and life-giving that you relied on one another and there was a a, a sense of trust and love and faithfulness together. That was what friendship was here. And the picture James is getting at is not you can't be friends with people who who are not Christians in the world. Obviously you can be. It's I'm trusting these things of the world. I'm connected. I'm so deeply connected with the world that Everything I need, all I'm looking for is there rather than with God. And James says, if you do that, you're an enemy of God. But as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, all the warnings in Scripture, don't do that. They're actually invitations to come and do something else. And James says, don't be a friend of the world. Why? Because I want you to be a friend of me, says God. James is warning us right here. He's inviting us to come and live right, live in light of the judge who we will one day stand before and become his friend and you know the key to actually living right it's really clear james says do, don't do this do do that but the key to understanding it's a living right is to think right about god so often the reason why we struggle is because we're not thinking properly about who god is and this passage yeah it's packed with do this and don't do that all of james is but it's also packed full of revelation about who god is you just need to look a bit deeper Think back to what we said in week one. I told you was a foundation that you need to remember throughout this whole book. And that is the foundation is that God is good all the time. And every good and perfect gift comes from him who is the father of lights. And he is for you. And his desire for you is that you would walk in the fullness of life. He's the one who came that we might have life and have it to the full. That's his desire for you. And the Christian life then is not a life of denial. It's not a life of do this and don't do that and look, the more miserable you can look the better and then the more Christian you shall be. Misery, misery, misery. I mean, we all know Christians who are like that and pff, best ignore them. Because the Christian life is actually a life of affirmation and enjoyment. Christians ought to be the biggest pleasure seekers in the universe because we're made for joy. We just often forget it or go looking somewhere else for it. And the first thing we need to remind ourselves of is that God is the author of all pleasure. Everything we look for, everything that we would ever enjoy, where we'd seek to find pleasure, it was made, it was created, it was authored by God himself for us to enjoy. See, all the pleasures of this world, all the true pleasures of this world, they're all made by God. The devil, he can't make anything. He's not a creator all he can do is hijack the good things that God has made and twist them in such a way and try and get in our heads to go, oh, God didn't really mean that. So, I mean, you think literally think about everything. Sex, God intended it to be good and to be enjoyed within a certain context. The devil went, did God really say? Money, it's not in and of itself evil or anything like that. It can be used for all sorts of good and pleasurable and exciting things in the right way. The devil goes, Yeah, but you just need to hold on to it a bit more because that's, that's the only way you're going to enjoy it. Be hold on to it for yourself, don't be giving it away. And God says, What are you doing? Be generous with it. It all comes from me in the first place. You can use it for all so-. the devil's like, nip, nip, nip. "In just in our ears. He can't, he doesn't create anything, he just tries to twist and warp. Everything, Same with food and drink and holidays and houses and and anything and everything. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. All true pleasures come from God. And the Bible is full of language of enjoyment and joy and pleasure. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Taste and see that the Lord is good. In your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The reason the psalmist says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God, is because in God is all the pleasure our hearts desire and could ever want to seek and find. Our problem is we go and look in other places. Our problem is we don't come and and, and truly believe and come and drink from these streams of living water. We go and find dirty... Toilets and dirty other things, and also go and drink from that. And it just doesn't taste and satisfy in the way it should. God wants us to know and experience the fullness of joy. And He tells us it's found exclusively in Him and the things that He provides. And He's so serious about it. James 5, at verse 5, James tells us He yearns jealously for us. Now, this is quite a confusing verse, and without getting into it, it's not entirely clear what James actually means here because he says, as the Scriptures say, and the Scriptures don't say that. There's no Old Testament verse that he's actually referring to, but we see elsewhere in Scripture this idea that God is a jealous God, and calling God jealous kind of confuses us because we think of jealousy as like something that results from fear or insecurity. Jealousy is like a negative trait. You don't want to be jealous. That's not good, but actually when we talk about how God is jealous, God is not jealous about you. God is jealous for you. God is jealous for you to walk in the fullness of joy. A picture that probably helped me understand this the most was the idea of a king, all right, who looks out on his lands and he goes and finds the a poor slave girl in poverty in the corner somewhere, like absolutely poor and got nothing herself and he says, that's the one I want to marry. She's the one I love. And he goes and gets her and he bestows on her all the majesty of a, of a queen. He makes her his queen. He gives her everything. From, she goes from poverty to wealth. She goes from worthless to crowned with beauty. She goes from lonely to loved. Everything that is his is now hers. It's all being bestowed on her. He's so jealous for her to know the fullness of everything that he has he gives to her. And then the picture here. We see in a moment where James says in verse 4, you adulterous people, the picture here is that this queen has gone, actually, all that the king's given me, I'm not so sure this is all that good, and has run back to her slavery and has run back to her poverty and has gone, I think the things out in the world is so much better than what this king has given me. And the picture is of the king going, what are you doing? No, that is not what you should walk in. Come and live like this. Come and walk like this. And it's exactly the picture here. And James says to us, listen... God has got all these things for us, this absolute fullness of joy and we're running off tasting this other stuff from the world which just doesn't satisfy in the same way and he says, what are you doing? Literally, he says, you adulterous people. It's like we say, hey God, thanks. Thanks for the offer but I actually think all the things of the world are going to be so much better. I actually think all the the people who are your enemies, I really trust them that they're going to provide for me a whole lot better and God says, what are you doing? And James says, don't do it, you adulterous people. Come back to where you should be. And here's the thing. All of us, at one time or another, muck up, make mistakes, and go back and take stuff from things of the world. We fail to fully believe God and his promises. That's what sin ultimately is. Failing to believe God and his promises and submit to him and and going and doing it our own way in some shape or form. How does God respond? Well, look at this. Verse 6, probably the best verse in the Bible It's probably the 48th time I've said that, but I really mean it this time. (laughs) Verse 6, but he gives more grace. Wow. This is not saving grace. Every believer's already got that. This is literally greater grace. This is Romans 5.20 where sin increased, grace abound all the more. There's always more grace, it always abounds. There is never a sin issue in your life that has more power than the cross of Christ to forgive and restore you. And God is so jealous for you to know his redeeming and restoring grace in your life so that you might walk in free and freedom and joy, that every time we go and do something that is from the world, every time we sin, every time we muck up, every time we make a mistake, every time we look somewhere we shouldn't, every time we go and drink from something we shouldn't, every time we go and act in such a way as we shouldn't, he says, there is more grace for you that will cover that error, that will cover that sin, that will cover that mistake. It's exactly why the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 4 says, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so we might receive mercy, And grace to help us in our time of need. Here's the beauty of the gospel no matter how high the sin volume is in your life, grace abounds all the more. It abounds all the more. And here's the thing the fact that grace abounds all the more, grace versus sin, who's going to win, how's it going to work out? It's not even close. I was watching TV the other day, and I ended up watching um, horse racing. I don't know why. I have no interest in horse racing. It's the most pointless thing imaginable. I'm never quite sure why the little guys get the prizes when it's the horse that does all the work. But that's another story. And I'm watching this thing, and honestly, it's dull. I don't get it. I mean, if you're a horse racing fan, well... (laughs) <laughs> Good for you, but it's a strange sport. Anyway, I'm watching it and actually one race started getting exciting and there was a brief moment where I thought, actually I could get into this. Like really quite exciting, it was neck and neck and neck and neck all the way and it was a photo finish. And they literally spent, I mean, what felt like an inordinate amount of time trying to work out who had won in this photo finish. And it was ended up being like a, a hair breath or a nostril breath or, I don't know, something. One Apparently one bit of the horse was in front of the other, I couldn't see it. But it, they declared there was a winner. It was seriously close listen, I just want you to imagine for a moment that grace and sin have a race to decide who wins. It is nowhere near close in any way, shape or form. Grace blows sin out of the water all day, every day. Grace has not only finished the race, he's had a shower, he's got dressed, he's gone home, he's had a meal, he's had a he's had another bath, no idea why you'd have another bath. He's gone and, and, and had an evening drink, had a nightcap, watched his favourite TV programme, gone to sleep, woken up in the morning, had breakfast, gone out, had a beautiful family day and just about that point sin is beginning to creep somewhere towards the finish line. Grace blows sin out of the water all day every single day it's not close it's not a oh, what's going to win what's not grace abounds more and more and more and more so how does God respond when we as Christians muck up and sin and do something stupid and do something that we shouldn't what do? What does he do he turns up the volume of grace so loud that the noise of rebellion is not only no longer heard it's completely wiped out that's the God Gospel. That's how serious God is that you would know freedom and joy and peace and contentment. That's how jealous God is for you. He would wipe it all out because grace abounds. Where sin abounds, Grace. grace abounds all the more. You need grace in your life today? Come, He will give. You need to know joy today in your life because there's issues that are going through? Come, He will give. But here's the thing it's conditional. It's conditional. What? I'm going to be conditional. It's freely given. Yeah, it is. When we submit to him. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. How do we respond to God's response to us? We've got a few minutes left. James gives us one big command, and then he breaks it down into three actions. And the big command to receive the grace of God in your life Submit to God. Submit to God. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. You see, God opposes the proud. Think about that phrase. God opposes the proud. He's actively against the proud. God The creator of all, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the one who is and was and is to come, the the lion of Judah, all of those things, he opposes the proud. Which means he opposes anybody who says, I'll do it my way, thanks. Wow. But he gives grace to the humble. And the only way to receive grace is to submit to God. Now this is hard because even though we're children of God, we naturally rebel against many of the things that God allows to happen in our lives. I mean, we so often resent the way God chooses to do all sorts of things. It's a daily battle to submit to God. We're trying to sell our house right now, right? We've had an offer accepted on a house and we're trying to sell ours. We're just waiting for that to go through. And honestly, it's a daily battle for me to submit, to say, God, it's up to you to do it how you wanna do it. Because everything in me is just wanting to go, God, Why don't you do it like this? It would make so much more sense if you just did it like this. Surely you can see this. (laughs) That's what I want to do every single day. I want to scream, come on. Submitting to God saying, your way, in your time, however you will. It's really hard. And it's hard because we look at our lives and we go, I just don't understand why you would do it like that. I mean, we want to be accomplished and, and, and highly regarded and God chooses someone else. And you think, what? We want our kids to, to grow up and be happy and content and do excellently in school like everybody else is, and yet ours is the troublemaking one who doesn't go so well. And we're like, what? We want this to happen. We want whatever it is to happen. And, and it's kind of like, God, what are you doing? It would be so much. Okay, no, submitting to him says, God, your will, your way your timing, my dreams my desires I submit it all to you I'll be honest with you so many Christians have like a mini private feud with God never tell anyone about it never admit it but we're a bit like Jonah you know the story of Jonah where he sits down under the withered vine and he's muttering and grumbling and he's so angry that the plant has died and he says I'm so angry I wish I was dead Now we might not sit under the withered dreams of the things that we really want and go I'm so angry I wish I was dead But we have this little mini private feud going on with God where we get angry and mess about it. And at this point, worldly wisdom says, you know what, you have a point, actually. You do deserve that. You have been hard done to. You are absolutely right to be angry about that. I can totally see your point of view. Yeah, it's probably okay for you to be angry with God. But godly wisdom says, you know, that sort of rebellion is ultimately a dead end. And it's ultimately just as pointless as Jonah's little strop. Because it doesn't go anywhere and it doesn't lead to anything. And there is only one answer. Submit to God. Let go and say, God, I don't understand it. I ain't particularly happy about it. But I'm quitting my little rebellion. And I'm going to bow before you. I'm going to quit trying to be the king of my own life. I'm going to submit my whole life, all of my dreams, all of my desires to you. I'm not going to try and shortcut I'm not going to try and short circuit it. I'm not going to try and get from here to here because I think this will be better. I'm going to say, Lord, in your way, at your time, however you decide. And James says, submit to God. And when you do, the grace comes flooding and the joy comes and the contentment comes. James says, submit to God. And then he gives us three little instructions. We've got a few minutes. We'll go through these quick. He says, resist the devil. Draw near to God. And get serious about your sin. Resist the devil. Resist the temptation of the world. The devil whispers in our ears that the world of, oh, you can do this. It's okay. Give in to temptation. It's okay. And James says, no, 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 resist. I'm going to resist. And we resist by drawing close to God. And as we draw close to God, the promise of scripture is that he comes rushing to us. As I step towards him, he comes sprinting towards me. As I make this intentional decision to move towards him, he comes running towards me. It's the picture of the prodigal son who comes and returns and the father sees him and goes running and throws his arms around him and smothers him with kisses and hugs and says, come, let's have a party. That's how God responds to us as we go to him and it's an active decision for us to draw near to God. It's not just a question of standing there going, I'm waiting here for you with my hands. Is he coming? With it high. <laughs> no, no, it's an active decision of pursuing God by getting into the word and going, this is what his word says, I'm going to line my life up by it. It's an active decision of, of coming and submitting in prayer and saying, God, shape my will so that my desires are yours. It's an active decision in saying, okay, the world says live like this. My desire is that looks quite attractive, but your word says this, and so I'm going to humbly submit myself to your word. And as we do that, he comes rushing to us. He comes and he fills us with his grace. And the final thing, just real quick, is we need to get serious about sin. I'll be honest with you, we live in a world that has a bit of a glibant response to sin. Even talking about repentance is somewhat difficult at times. And James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. In verse 9, he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You know, we, we so often, really what we want to hear is somebody make us laugh, make us feel good, and then go home and chill out. But James says, no, 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 sin is serious. And so deal with it seriously. He literally says, be devastated about it. And he says it's because when we're aware of the reality of our sin and when we mourn and when we grieve and when we get down in the dirt all busted up with an awareness of our sin, when we're humbled, verse 10, then we get exalted before the Lord. You see, the way up is down. The first shall be last. The, the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. And when we get very serious about our sin, when we're, when we're in the dirt aware of the brokenness and the junk and the mess that we've made of it, that's when he comes and swoops and lifts us up. Probably the most beautiful, powerful story in the Bible is the story of the woman caught in adultery. And she's dragged naked through the crowd and she's flung at the feet of Jesus. And she's caught in adultery. I mean, there's no like if, buts and maybes. They literally caught her in the act. And the law says she should be killed. And they drag her and they say, let's stone her. And with snot and tears and dirt and shame all over her, Jesus says to her and says to them, let the one of you who is without sin cast the first stone. The Bible records what happens from the oldest to the youngest. They all suddenly drop their stones and shuffle off out of the picture, never to be seen again. And he walks over to her and he picks up her face. And don't miss this. He picks up her face The son of God, the creator, the sustainer of all things, picks up this guilty woman's face. Her her guilt is never in question. She's broken. She's ashamed. She's lying naked on the floor. She's completely bust up about the whole thing. It's visible for the whole world to see. It's her most shameful, despicable moment of her life. And he looks her in the face and he says, has no one condemned you? Neither do I. Go and sin no more. You see, it's in the dirt, it's in the dust, it's in our tears, it's in our brokenness over our sin that the forgiveness and the grace of this jealous God who gives more grace launches us out into thanksgiving and joy and freedom forevermore. You think this woman lays lay there on the floor moping around. He's forgiven me. I'll just lay here and beat myself up in my sin. No, she gets up and she goes running and dancing. I mean, we're not actually told, but she—there there is no way she just lies on the floor and goes, woe is me. He says I'm free and forgiven, so I will beat myself up some more on the floor. No, no, no. She's been broken and now she's exalted because the forgiveness has come. And that's what happens to us, brothers and sisters. We get serious about our sin we come and we confess it before him we confess our sin he is faithful to purify and when he purifies us he says there's no more condemnation as far as the east is from the west that's how far I've removed your transgression i've turned the volume of grace all the way up all your sin is gone so get serious about dealing with it because once you're serious about dealing with it is dealt with for all time and there is no need to feel ashamed or guilty anymore for For he has set you free to a life of freedom and joy. We don't deserve it. We could never earn it. Yet he pours out abundantly his grace upon us. Let's pray.